and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB. I'm joined in the studio today with my lovely co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor at LARB, and we are thrilled today to have a show with Min Jin Lee, author of the National Book Award finalist, Pachinko, a novel that tells the story of multiple generations of a Korean family navigating life first under Japanese colonial rule in the early 20th century, and then ending in Tokyo at the end of the 20th century. I think this is when we just gush about Pachinko. Yeah. Oh, we should also say... Kate Wolf, our other co-host, is not in the studio with us today, but she is in on this interview. So you will hear Kate's voice when we cut to the interview. She is. But to return to Pachinko... Let's gush. It's great. So good. I mean, so good. I think I actually say this in the interview, but I just held on to the last, like, maybe 30 or 40 pages of that book. And when I had finished it, just sobbed as quietly as I could to myself. Yeah. A number of times. It doesn't make me confident in your emotional skills. Well, you're stronger than I am. That's true. That is true. It's been proven. Um, But me too. I really, I really loved it. And I was sobbing while reading it because I had uh, destroyed my computer by spilling water on it, and which was a deep psychological trauma for me. And I just didn't have anything else to do. I couldn't work. I couldn't face any other device because I had just destroyed the most important one. Um, I want the audience to recognize right now that Medea cries over things <laughs> and I cry over human experiences, fictional and otherwise. <laughs> things are precious to me. Anyways, go on. Sorry. Anyway, so all I could really do was read Pachinko. And I had no mm. other distractions and... It was the best. It was just the best time, partly because the story is just so compelling and the characters are fun. And it really reads, I think, like one of the most pleasurable 19th century novels. I mean, I want to say it also deals with very serious subjects. Yeah, it's 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 not just super fun. Yeah. But fun is a way that we describe any book that we get taken up by. Yes. But I think that she has a way of writing that makes you completely immersed in the world. And I knew that from the first 25 pages, there's a scene in which one of the early characters, which I won't give away, is making kimchi. And it's like you could almost feel yourself being there in the room with her anxiety and what's going on in that particular moment. And I just found that magical and engrossing. Me too. I really loved it. And talking to Min was just as lovely as reading the book. As viewers will hear in just a second, she has an incredible story that totally stunned me. I mean, I was just even more impressed with the novel than I had been at the beginning. Same. Let's listen to the interview. All right, let's do it. We're speaking with novelist Min Jin Lee. Lee's first novel, Free Food for Millionaires, was published to wide acclaim in 2007. Her most recent novel, Pachinko, published last year by Grand Central, was a finalist for the National Book Award. The book covers the tragedies and fleeting joys of multiple generations of Korean women living under Japanese colonial rule at the beginning of the 20th century, and then moving through the tumult of World War II before finally concluding in Tokyo at the close of the century. It's quite a story, and we are thrilled to have Min with us today. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Hello. I guess one place to start is 
thinking about the book is about the immigrant experience. Now, one of the things that's different in the Korean and Japanese experience that you explore in the novel is that it's leavened by colonialism, right? But I'm wondering how the book might challenge our understanding of the immigrant experience from how we understand it in the American context. That's a really good question. I think that the Koreans in Japan have had a weird experience because of the colonial aspect to it. Mm-hmm. But there have been so many histories around the world with a colonial aspect to it. And as a matter of fact, Americans were once colonized. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> and I think that in fact, in many ways, Americans are still intellectually colonized by Europe. And I think that's what mm. I, I think about a lot. Also, the people who went to Japan from Korea were economic migrants. And they didn't necessarily want to leave Korea, but because of colonialism, they didn't have enough prospects in their own native country after Japan took so many of the things that had once belonged to the Koreans. And that was really interesting to me because I didn't think of it that way. And when I first started to understand the history of Koreans in Japan, and the other thing that a lot of historians get stuck on and a lot of people sort of get stuck on is that they think that the Koreans were forcibly brought to Japan And although there were Koreans forcibly brought to Japan and there were forcible labor and slaves, the majority of the people who went to Japan were economic migrants, people who really didn't have a choice in terms of how to make a living, but they did choose to go there. Min, just a quick question. This is Medea. What I'm really interested in this, what you just mentioned, what do you consider as intellectual colonization? I think intellectual colonization is when you think that other people are superior to you intellectually, philosophically. So in the sense that I was talking about how Americans are still colonized by Europe is that, for example, we believe that a French accent is charming, a British accent Mm. is charming, whereas an accent necessarily from a certain part of the South may not necessarily be considered charming. And I've met many people from the South who've had to erase their Southern accent in order to be accepted by people from the North. So that's a kind of intellectual colonization that's occurred even with just white people, which I think is interesting. For listeners who haven't read the book yet, can you just start off by telling us about the main characters in Pachinko? It is a four-generation historical saga, and the main character is Sanja, who is a young woman who becomes pregnant by a married man, and she falls in love with him without knowing that he's married. And when she becomes pregnant, she thinks he's going to marry her. But in fact, his plan is to kind of keep her as a second wife in Korea. She refuses to have this arrangement, and later on, she ends up marrying a sort of sickly missionary and ends up going to Japan. So she's neither an economic migrant nor forcible labor. She's sort of a person who made a mistake with trusting the wrong guy, and then she ends up becoming the matriarch of four generations. And something that I had to look up when I was reading the book is what pachinko is. (laughs) Because it's something that you hear, it's a word that I always sense like I know what that means, but I actually realize that I don't quite know what that game is. Would you describe that too? Would you define what it looks like? And I looked up some of the vintage pachinko machines and they're beautiful. Would you describe what pachinko is, the title of the book? You're not alone in not knowing what pachinko is. Most people have no idea what it is. It's uniquely to Japan. They used to have a little bit of it in Taiwan. Again, another nation that has been colonized by Japan and has the same history. 
But pachinko is essentially a vertical pinball game. It's a gambling game for adults, kind of like slot machines. So when we say pinball, people think it's for Mm -hmm. kids, but it's really for adults. And it's really in order to make money. It's a $303 billion business today. So $203 billion, it's a lot of zeros. And if you want to think about it, it's twice the export revenues of the Japanese auto industry. And the Japanese make excellent cars, which they export. So you can just imagine how much money that is. It's a cornerstone of the Japanese economy today. It is also an industry that's seen as very low class, dirty, and criminal. It is dominated by the Korean Japanese who have a long history with that business, especially the men, because that is where they found employment since they could not find gainful employment in working class and middle class situations since they were not allowed to work in many places. So you did a ton of research for this book, and you write in your acknowledgement that you've been thinking about writing it since you were in college. I'm wondering, with the characters that you ultimately created, how much of your research came to bear with them? How much were they your original creation? How What was it like to work with so much historical documentation? And how did you balance the depth of your research with the demands of living, breathing novel? Your question is so important because, to be honest, I had not done it very well, and balancing it was really difficult. And also just believing in the fact that I had chosen the right project was really difficult because the longer it took, the worse I felt about my decision. (laughs) And the more research I did, the more wrong I was about all the things that I had preconceived. And... I felt really discouraged all along the way. I think that I can admit that I was definitely depressed during this period. And I kept on thinking that it was really stupid of me to have left the law to be a fiction writer. (laughs) So tell us just a little bit. So you started writing this book when? In 1990s? Or how long have you been working on it? I got the idea in 89 when I was in college. And then I went to law school... I practiced for two years, and then I quit in 95. I wrote an entire first book that was rejected by everybody, and that was called Revival of the Census. And that was kind of like a sibling book, and it wasn't very good, and it was just a total catastrophe. (laughs) (laughs) The second book that I wrote was 1996 to 2003, and that was called Motherland, and that was the precursor to Pachinko. And it was an entire manuscript, and that was based on a lot of academic scholarship that I had done. And again, that book was really terrible. And after I finished that, I got so depressed. I just thought, wow, I really ruined my life. And I couldn't quite figure out what to do. And at that point, I didn't have an agent and I didn't have anything. And I decided that I'm just going to write a book about people from Queens. So because of all these people that I knew who are working class immigrants, and I wanted to critique class aspirations. So I wrote Free for the Millionaires. And that book, came out in 2007, and that was 12 years after I quit being a lawyer. And then when I went to Japan in 2007, because my husband got a job, I was, again, really disappointed because I didn't want to move there. I mean, it's a great country to visit, and Japan's really a lot of fun. But I didn't necessarily want to leave all my friends and my family and everything that I knew. But when I got there, I decided I'm going to go back to that book, Motherland, and I'm going to start it again. And when I started doing all this personal research and also regional sort of travel and basically doing field work and meeting all these Korean Japanese, I realized that the first book sucked because I didn't know what I was talking about in terms Mm. of who the people were. So I threw that entire book away and kept one chapter 
and I started all over again. And at that point, that's when Tanja started to appear. So to answer your prior question about how do people affect characterization, Tanja didn't really even come to me until like 2008. Noah didn't really come to me until 2010. So I had to keep rewriting the entire book to accommodate the different plot lines. And I got so confused. (laughs) Well, I will say I had to keep a family tree written by hand in the front of the book for myself just to track all the characters and their movements. Okay, I'm really sorry about that. It's funny because people are pretty clear about it now, but I got really confused. And then I found a software called Scrivener, which is what a lot of academic writers oh, yeah. use, yeah. which was really helpful because it allowed me to sort of create these sort of outlines and index cards that allowed me to move files around. So that was kind of an interesting thing to learn just being a professional writer. But first, I never thought this book would do this well. I mean, it was not part of my calculus. Who was the first character that came to you that you kept for the final version? Solomon, who is now like 4% of the book. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. It right at the end. Yeah, okay. it's not funny. <laughs> Can we actually talk a little bit about craft from your perspective? I'm fascinated about the progression through a series of literary failures that brought you to a real goldmine of a book, obviously something that's been named a finalist for the National Book Award. There's a way that I find very pleasurable how you don't dilate in a very, very sweeping novel. You don't dilate on the types of experiences that tend to be the linchpin of plots. So, for example, marriages, deaths, funerals, births, those kind of things. What I loved is that you actually will dispense with that in about a single sentence at the beginning of the next chapter, right? So-and-so died, the funeral was dour, blah, 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 blah. And then what I think you actually give us is something like the dailiness that actually shapes our lives. So can you talk about how you made the selection process about what events you were going to dilate over and what events you were just going to kind of move through the plot with? Well, that's an excellent question, Alex. Thank you. And thank you for saying such nice things about the book. It's I loved it, I by the way. <laughs> I have to tell you, I, I literally closed the door to my bedroom and sobbed when I finished it. <laughs> He does that with every book. That's not true. I'm not just a bleeding heart, but it is easy for me to bleed from the heart. Well, I'm always crying, and I even cry at events, and I didn't even have any idea how I get sent on tour because I'm really not fit for public consumption. But (laughs) I'm always crying. My eye doctor has said to me that it's really good for your eyes. (laughs) To cry? cry. Yes, especially I'm older. I'm going to be 50 this year and have chronic dry eye. So he's always like, no, it's really, really good to cry. Don't worry about it. It means that you still have feelings. So <laughs> That's such a nice doctor question. to have. Right? Yeah, it's really reassuring. <laughs> yes, his bedside manner is excellent. So I think that in order for me to think about plot selection, because I believe plot is so important, mm. and this sort of helps to think about it, but I had never intended to write a historical novel. So when I was studying to create models for this book, I was not looking at historical novels. As a matter of fact, I had never intended to write one, so it didn't even occur to me. I was always thinking of these social realist novels of the 19th century, which were never that you know expansive in terms of timeline. And I think if I had known that I would write a book that almost encompasses a century of events, I probably would have given up. And... The good thing that happened was that I had failed for such a long time that I decided that 
I did have to finish it. And then after I finished it, if I could, I don't know, do anything, like become a paralegal because I wasn't qualified to be a lawyer anymore, I was going to do that if I had to get health insurance. Mm. I'm totally serious about this. And I think in order for me to choose the event, I thought a lot about how do I explore characterization of the people more than the event? Because the event mm. can inform character, but characterization in terms of emotional responses to other people, that became much more important to me. So I'm really interested in, like, let's say Eric and Kate are speaking and there is some collision in terms of wishes, like Eric wants something and Kate wants something. That's more interesting to me than if they decided to go to a funeral together. Does that make sense? Mm, the yeah. funeral only becomes the backdrop. And in order for me to explore Kate's characterization and Eric's characterization, I'd have to have them in the same room and have an experience together. But that experience does not have to be a traditional historical novel experience. And what, to your mind, is a traditional historical novel experience? Because I didn't, as much as this does cover, you know, huge world events, World War II, the Korean War, I certainly didn't feel that the history was hammered down my throat as a reader. It felt like a really light touch, but yet it does alter the lives of the characters in the novel. It's funny that you mention it because because I majored in history and because I thought about getting a history PhD, I have enormous respect for the scholarship. But then after I read about 30 books about the Korean Japanese, I got really overwhelmed by how heavy it was. And then also what really struck me was that I decided that I wasn't really a historian. I really started to admire anthropologists because they do these things called ethnographies where they kind of interview a person in a very deep way. And I started doing these sort of fake ethnographies with all of my interview subjects. And what I learned was that when you have a war or when you have a major event like immigration law changing, and then all of a sudden, let's say you lose your citizenship, which is what happened to all these Korean Japanese, they weren't really thinking about the law or even the war or the peace treaty. They were mostly thinking about things like okay, the law says I could bring $500 back to Korea or $500 equivalent to Korea. What would I take and what would I leave behind? That decision-making process was very human. Sort of the way, like if you and I had to run out of a burning house, what do you take with you? It was kind of like that. So I had to kind of really constantly tell myself, you have to know all the history and you have to be correct with all the law. However, you cannot make the reader go through this. <laughs> so right. I would have all these sort of like, scaffolding of history, I have hundreds of pages of historical outlines that I did in order to defend my characterization. But then I would not voice that on the reader because the reader really wants to know, well, did you have a safety pin? Do they have safety pins available during the war? And very often things like shoe polish and safety pins were the things that people worried about, not immigration law, which mm -hmm. I thought was very human. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Min Jin Lee, author of Pachinko. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. So I'm joined in the studio now with Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB, who has this week's book recommendation. What are you recommending, Dea? I'm going to be recommending a book by Janet Malcolm 
Mm. called The Silent Woman. The Silent Woman is a book about Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, that very famous duo, and about the process uh, and the nature of biographies and how they come to be and how we essentially understand the narrative of somebody like Sylvia Plath mm. after she's died and how that is also coupled with how we understand Ted Hughes and the various different people who are involved in shaping that narrative. Was there anything that you learned in the book that you didn't really know about Sylvia Plath? Is that kind of the flavor of it as it's telling you kind of how these characters in real life get constructed by biography and autobiography? Yes. In some ways, yes. I was, as all young, I think, literary ladies are, totally obsessed with Sylvia Plath in middle school Mm, and high school. And so I read her journals. I remember distinctly going to Barnes and Nobles, getting this immense book that was, I think, at least 5,000 pages long (laughs) of her journals. It had a picture of her on the cover. She's this beautiful, it's this beautiful gray and white photograph, black and white. And I read through those, like a totally obsessed, insane person looking back at it now. Mm. And as I got older, This might be the progression for a lot of people, but sort of switched my interest to Ted Hughes in college, bought his letters and left them completely untouched. But there's something that is so compelling about one, those two creative forces next to each other and two, the story. Right. Which I mean, which a lot of people have thought. I think the other thing that I found really compelling about Ted Hughes story (laughs) is that his second wife also committed suicide and killed the child. And so one of the things that is compelling about it is what is it about this man or about (laughs) this person that is either so completely destructive Mm, or or breeds a kind of vulnerability? I don't have the answer for that. And, And Janet Malcolm isn't quite out to answer that either. I think one of the reasons why I picked up the book is because partly my guilt for never having read Hugh's letters but also partly because I was interested in how I have understood that story for so long and why Mm. I have throughout my life been compelled to sort of follow it. And Janet Malcolm, what she really does is sort of dissect the assumptions that people have about both Sylvia Plath and her uh, legacy and her um, writing and the kind of story that's been built up around her and her death and Ted Hughes and and the legacy he's left. That sounds fascinating. I, I am always interested in those kind of stories that restore to us the actual person rather than kind of the myth or the figure that's been built up, which both is true, that myth and figure is true, and also isn't really the whole story. Yeah. And I think so much of it that Janet Malcolm talks about is the kind of reverence that a biography in, invariably has to adopt. Sure. Yeah. And One of the biographies that she talks about is one where Sylvia is not maybe treated as kindly or as generously as subjects are often treated. Mm. Um, And she doesn't come off that well. And there was a huge backlash to this biography, which came out in the 80s. So that was also part of my interest because they were presumably real people with habits that must have been terrible and with... um, (laughs) ways of living in the world that probably drove other people insane. And it is really, it's really interesting to get that kind of perspective on an otherwise mythological creatures. That sounds fantastic. Can you give us the author and the title again? Yeah. So that's The Silent Woman by Janet Malcolm. Thanks so much, Dea. Thanks, Eric. 
You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Min Jin Lee, author of Pachinko. You can also see the progression even through the vegetables that are available. You know, the, the, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. main character starts off selling kimchi and then cabbage isn't available. Then she has to switch to making candy. And then, you know, th- on that very human level, um, you were able to show the larger forces at play. It's funny about war. And deprivation is a, in the end, it's so important, like, who you know who can get you fed. Yeah. Because if you look at, like, I I studied a lot of war diaries for this book. And in the war diaries, the representation of the Japanese people's experience was so different than their public face. Because in the public Mm -hmm. face and within their communities, the community leaders were often spying on them and reporting on them. So around everybody else, they have to be like, rah, rah, I'm happy to send my son to war where I'm positive he's going to come out either dead or missing limbs. Because that, that was the experience of the Japanese father and mother. Because they were pretty much guaranteed and outnumbered in all the places they're trying to reach. But then in their diaries, if you read them, all they do is talk about, oh, Mrs. Tanaka wouldn't let me have the sardines, and she favored her best friend over me, and I was online for three hours, <laughs> and how in the world am I going to put food on the table when I'm only allowed to have 40 grams of rice per day for my entire family? Like, that's pretty much what they're talking about. There's a lot of grumbling in the diaries, in which obviously, uh, in public face, they couldn't. Right. It's interesting that you say that, because the there is a character in this novel that is a, a, a sort of deus ex machina at, at points for the for the family, right, where he comes in and provides them with food or shelter. And and when you mentioned your interest in the 19th century novel, it's Dickensian in a way, right? Like we have mm. this um, private benefactor who is supporting the young man while he goes to college, or and is nefarious and is right, nefarious is in his way. Or is, you know, secretly had set up a job for the family. Why did you create this character? Oh, the character was very present in all of my interviews. Believe it or not, most of the people that I interviewed... Now, imagine I'm interviewing people who have survived four or five generations of being Korean Japanese. So the people who didn't make it, I didn't interview. Right. Mm-hmm. The wow. people who did make it were often people who are connected. So if you think about how even us, the four of us, were speaking, we're speaking because somehow we got here. <laughs> yeah. And we got here through chance, through work, through merit, through accident, like whatever, for some reason, we're here. But there are other people who didn't make it to this conversation. Does that make sense? That's a great point. And and when I was interviewing all these people in Japan, I was so struck by how they often had some bizarre benefactor. So even though you're absolutely right, I'm obsessed with 19th century literature from Europe and in the U.S., where there often is some sort of uncle that leaves you a legacy at the very end so you can marry the guy that you want. And that's great. And all of us wish we had uncles like that, where we get this mysterious legacy in the phone call from the lawyer or the solicitor or whatever. And... In Japan, I interviewed these types of people who move the dial, and they're terrifying and yet incredibly attractive. And I wanted to write about Hansu, and he was probably 
my favorite person to write because things happened. Like one of the things that's interesting about literary novels is that very often things don't happen enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And things don't happen enough because in life things are really slow. But if I'm writing about almost a hundred years, things can happen a lot. <laughs> and very often the people who can make things happen are powerful people. And powerful people in my study of them were very terrifying, as well as very sexy, very magnetic, charismatic. And that's a, that's a wonderful gift when you have a book and you have a story and you can put a person like that in your book. That, ma- uh, that makes me wonder, would you mind sharing with us how your, your own personal history with this? Like, how did you make it? How did I make, I'm sorry. How did you make it to this conversation? <laughs> you know, so you've said we all have mm-hmm. some paths, right, or some luck or yes. um, accident. So would you mind telling us about your family, uh, your experience as a lawyer? What made you leave that and finally write a book and then not give up? I think that I can answer that question at least superficially by thinking very quickly about these two things that are really important to me is one is I'm a Presbyterian and that's a weird thing to say in a a literary podcast, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm probably the first one. (laughs) Um, And being a Presbyterian, you're always kind of toggling between this idea of fate and free will. Mm. So what are the choices that I've made in order to be in this conversation? And what what was fated for me to be, talking to the LARB podcast. I'm not sure. I mean, it's difficult to get on a podcast like this. So a part of me feels like, I guess I'm supposed to be on it. Another part of it thinks like, well, I must have merited some attention to be worthy of this moment and to be of your time. And also the time that you spent reading this book or thinking about this podcast, does that make sense? Of course. And then I also think, well, if I am here, what can I do to serve the people who are with me? And I think about this all the time. So that's my Presbyterian background. And the second thing that's much more historical about me and biographical is that I was really sick when I was a kid. I gave blood when I was in high school, and I learned that I was a chronic hepatitis B carrier, which means that you could be asymptomatic and you could be symptomatic. And I was asymptomatic until I went to college, and then I became, I became very ill, and I had to take some time off, and it took me longer to graduate from college. I had to go to summer school. And then later on, I became well again, and I started to work as an attorney. And after two years of working incredibly hard, I got really sick. And I thought, well, if I'm going to die young, and that's pretty much what my doctors at college had said to me, that I would get liver cancer in my 20s and 30s, what will you do? Wow. That's and so they had scary. Said, yeah. So I think about mortality. I think I've been thinking about mortality at a much more early age than the average person and you know I'm going to be 50 this year so I'm, and by the way in my late 30s I was cured of hepatitis B as a chronic carrier through interferon B I did a six month course I was very very sick but it, it made me completely well and I've been checked recently and I'm totally healthy but oh, that's such I good having, news thank you no it, it was really quite a deliverance but because I had this for several decades I'm always thinking about well how does this moment matter? And it, it probably makes me a, probably a more silly person than me. Because I'm not, I don't take this lightly. I don't take this moment lightly. I don't take the second lightly. And I also don't take events lightly. So it gives me a kind of sobriety, but I'm also incredibly grateful for this. 
because I wasn't so sure I would get more of it. And um, people have asked me why I have been able to be on tour forever. Because <laughs> I've been on tour forever now and I have another six months to go and then I'm going to stop. But when you work on a book intellectually and emotionally for 30 years, and then you also feel in a great sense delivered from a sentence that you did not want, you do feel incredibly grateful for people's time and energy. And I do want to be useful. Like, I'd love to be useful. Like, I think about my son used to love this thing called Thomas of Tank Engine (laughs) when he was little. And his big mantra is, he wants to be a useful engine. (laughs) Oh, yes. I, I, too, wish to be a useful engine while I'm here. Well, can we talk a little bit about what's going on with you now? I'm, I'm really interested, especially kind of moving to the end of this arc, is what did being a finalist for the National Book Award do for you on kind of a personal level, but also on a professional level? That's a really good question because it's so weird what happened. I didn't expect this. And I was not reviewed by a lot of newspapers. So in Mm. America, I was only reviewed by the New York Times and USA Today. And much, much later on, I was reviewed by the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, we're talking months, like almost like six months later on, San Francisco Chronicle. And then the Boston Review it wasn't a review. It was like a profile. So that's it. Like, that was my U.S. coverage. In the U.K., I was reviewed by every single major literary publication, including, like, the Times Literary Supplement. So I had this very, like, two incredibly weird bifurcated experiences of how the book was received. And a part of me just like, and then just between us, I'm sure no one else <laughs> about We that. won't tell anybody. <laughs> no, don't tell anybody. Um, my editor and my publisher left the firm in December and my book came out in February. Oh, God. So I was told by a lot of smart people, you just have to get out there and you have to explain your book because you have a foreign name and you have a foreign title and you have an abstract cover. You just have to go out there. And I am not a good traveler (laughs) and I'm privately incredibly shy and introverted. So I said, okay, I guess I'll just go do this. And people were so nice in the tour. And I can't even tell you like how people are so generous. And then when the National Book Award finalist list came out, I almost passed out. I was like, how could this happen? <laughs> and yeah. and um, then the next thing that happened that was like a big deal was the New York Times top 10 of the year. So those two things together, all of a sudden, like this boom, you know, exploded and changed the conversation. And my publisher pushed up the paper deck paperback um what do you call that the pub date right right right. in november rather than january and since then it's just been nonstop. have you thought at all about or maybe this is in development as i was reading i kept thinking this would make a great miniseries or this would make a great film do you have any plans to develop it a lot of people are talking about it right now (laughs) not a surprise the business people uh, with the business people, and they said exactly what you said, which is that it should be a series or a limited mm. series, and there's a lot of discussion about it. I think what's sort of sad is that there's a greater wish for global content, but there hasn't been much global content when it describes Asians in mm, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I think people are trying to fix that, but 
everybody seems like, oh, we really want to do this, but a lot of them are like, we don't know how. <laughs> so that's interesting just to hear. I'm wondering, um, in this particular year that we've had in the States uh, with Donald Trump in office, if you've had people responding to the book and the stories and themes of immigrants and the way they're treated um, so devastatingly, have people been responding in a current context to the book? Have people been talking to you about the story that you told in history as it relates to the current moment? Yes, absolutely. And especially around the world, especially the UK press, Australian press, Irish press, South African press, they've all been responsive to precisely that point. And it's an issue that I care about profoundly because I am a political writer and both of my books are political critiques. My first book is about I'm critiquing class aspirations of Americans and of immigrants in this country. And my second book really is about my politics and how I believe that institutional racism is unacceptable and how it impacts historically and generationally in the psyche of the individual. So you have a person like Solomon who really doesn't make sense unless we understand the 80, 90 years that preceded Mm. his formation. So all of my politics are in my work and in my fiction, and I think people do see that just the way you've, you've sensed it. And that's been primarily what we talk about during Q&A when I go around, and that's what we're talking about in colleges, too. Well, you know, when you talk about your politics, one of the, the through lines in the novel and is repeated often enough that it becomes a kind of truism is that suffering is the lot of women, Right. That's what Sunja's mother uh, tells her. And it's a thing that's repeated at several key moments. Do you think that that's always going to be the case? Because the novel is temporarily bounded by basically the early 1900s through the end of the 20th century. You know, how do you do you take any hope or solace that those kind of conditions, um, specifically gendered conditions, might be changing in kind of the wake of current movements like Me Too, Time's Up, and the Women's March? I think that not everybody, especially not all women, suffer in the same way. And I'm a global feminist. And one of the things that we have to recognize is that women around the world, most of them, almost all of them are actually poor and disenfranchised around Mm. the world. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that all women around the world are poor and disenfranchised. That's certainly not the case. That said, one of the things that I'm also critiquing is this idea that suffering doesn't have to occur. Mm. One of my criticisms against Western pursuit of happiness is that it's making a lot of people miserable because I don't know a single human being who doesn't suffer And in all of my interviews that I do, these kind of fake ethnographies that I do, I keep meeting people who are really powerful, really beautiful, really attractive, incredibly cool, have a million followers or whatever, and they're suffering in their private way. They have a sick kid, they have a sick parent, they have, they're battling with addiction, like, or people could be more poor than they appear. Everybody's suffering, but then there's this pretense that you can somehow eliminate all the suffering just by making your bed or whistling or whatever it is that people are recommending that you do. (laughs) So one of the things that I talk about whenever I go around and people talk about this central question is, why don't we just admit that people do suffer and there is a season in your life in which suffering will come and that we accept it, we respect it, and that we try to recover. 
but then this constant like wish to make people say, oh, put a smile on and just be happy is incredibly cruel. I, I think it's cruel to tell people to be happy when they're not. And I think that it doesn't even work. So I'm not saying that just women suffer because my character really resists this message that she keeps getting from older women. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. You've got to marry the right guy because mm. it's such a sick message as well. But I would love it if I could somehow have my tiny little antidote to Western civilization and to say, in the United States, a very young country, this pursuit of youth and happiness is making people really ill. Well, that seems like a, a okay. perfect <laughs> message to end on. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm a really cheerful writer. <laughs> well, no, but I, I think that point about kind of meeting suffering as part of your life, as part of any life, yeah. is an important one, and yeah. not running away from it, but rather being with it. And then that also gives you gratitude. And crying is good for your eyes, as you said, so <laughs> <laughs> might <Yeah>. as well. <laughs> All right. We've been speaking with Min Jin Lee, author of Pachinko. Thank you so much for joining us, Min Jin Lee. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.